sometimes it's very difficult to find out who's on the same side. If you're a fan of old-time detective novels, for example, or maybe this will visualize it for you. Back when movies were good and clean in the days of Humphrey Bogart, when Bogart made a series of these movies, one of which was called The Maltese Falcon. And you see all these different people doing all these different things, and if you haven't watched it and have it memorized, you really have no idea till the end who's on whose side. Whether they're doing something for themselves, or, or for the team, or for the cause, or for self-interest. And there's double-crossing and triple-crossing. It can be difficult. It's difficult in everyday life, too. In simpler times, out in the frontier, when your life might depend on who was on your side, someone who came up to a home might be met with a shotgun barrel saying, are you for us or are you against us? And the way you answered that question would depend on what happened with that shotgun. Well, this is true with the gospel as well. Because there are not multiple teams of the gospel. There are multiple ministries, but there is but one gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've probably heard this cliche, that with respect to the gospel, there is no Switzerland. You are either for Jesus Christ, or you are against Him. And if that's true, then we need to find out who are for the gospel as we go out and do ministry. The same was true in Paul's life here in Galatia. And so, as he's speaking to the Galatians and describing to them the importance of the gospel and what the gospel is and what the gospel ministry is, he wants to take time here and emphasize the unity of gospel ministry. And it's a unity centered around the gospel, not around personalities, not around leaders, not around plans, around the gospel. And so what I'd like us to see this morning from this text is something that I hope we can take to our own ministry tomorrow in Houston. Three things. The unity that is found in the gospel. It was true in Paul's day, and it needs to be true in our day today that our unity needs to be in the gospel. But secondly... Paul makes just as clear that there is diversity in the mission of the gospel. Unity in the gospel, but diversity in the mission as it goes forth. And how does Paul bring those two things together? Unity and diversity. He does it by our third point this morning. By saying that this is a partnership, not a rivalry. See, our unity is found in the gospel. There may be different ways of doing the mission of the gospel, but it's in the context of a partnership, not a rivalry. And so let us see then this, I think, very practical lesson for us today from our text. Paul begins here in verse 7 saying, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, 
just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Now remember the context here. Paul has just been speaking about earlier in verse 2 the fact that there's a different gospel going on in Galatia and he's been at great pains to show that his gospel was the exact same as Peter's gospel, the exact same as James' gospel, the exact same as John's gospel. You remember what he said in verse 2? I went and I set before them. I laid it all out. I wasn't hiding anything. Everything that I preached, I laid out in front of them. And they said, that's what we preached to. There was a unity in the gospel because it was found in the same doctrine. Paul is teaching the same thing that those in Jerusalem are teaching. He's just been criticizing the Judaizers about this. And there's something implicit here that I want you to keep in the back of your mind. If Paul is teaching the exact same thing that those in Jerusalem are teaching, and the Judaizers are saying Paul's got it different, Paul's got it wrong, then what does that say about the Judaizers' teaching? It's not the same as Jerusalem. They don't have unity of doctrine. They don't have the same doctrine. And that's the root of all the problems. And there are a lot of problems in Galatia. We're going to get into that more and more as we go through this book. There are social problems. There are ecclesiastical problems. There are familial problems. There are relational problems. But they stem from not having the same doctrine. Paul's very emphatic here. He says, on the contrary, this is highlight and bold. We might imagine Paul waving his hand as he said this. You think it's different? On the contrary, it's the same. It's a very emphatic way to do this. Peter uses the same phrase when he's saying, don't repay evil with evil, but on the contrary, do good. It's an entirely different way of looking at things. Paul's trying to reorient the Galatians. Now, I want you to remember also here that Paul did not yield at all. He says, not for a moment did he yield. Paul wanted to teach not just the same doctrine as Peter and James and John. He wanted to teach the exact same doctrine. That's why Paul didn't yield. He wanted to have the exact same gospel that they did. It's one of the reasons he was so strident in his defense of the gospel. And we've said it before, but it bears saying again, when gospel truths are at stake, there can be no compromise. There can be no yielding. It may make you uncomfortable to take that kind of a stand. It may mean an awkward absence from a certain gathering. It may mean an awkward silence where someone expects affirmation. It may mean a gut-wrenching, prayer-filled cry to God to be gracious in correcting someone. But it's necessary if we don't have the same doctrine. Because our unity is found in the same doctrine. 
the apostles saw this as well. Because on the contrary, Paul says, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel. You see, this was not just them standing around watching Paul give the four spiritual laws to someone. Checking off a card, making sure he used the right proof texts. No. Paul had his gospel set before them. They had reports from the field. They spoke with him. This is not just observation. This is theological insight. This is a loaded term. Look down with me at a text that we're going to look at next week in verse 14. Very famous. Paul says, When I saw that their conduct, that is namely Peter and the others in Galatia, in Antioch, excuse me, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, same word, Paul sees and hears what's going on and he makes a theological judgment that they are not teaching the same thing as the gospel by their actions. So here the apostles. They look and see at what Paul is teaching and they say, this is the same doctrine that we preach. Now, how do they get this? They get it from Paul's own testimony. Verse 2, he set out his gospel before him. They also get it from the evidence of God's blessing in Paul's ministry, in Acts. Men are converted. Women are converted. Families are brought into the church. They can see it happening from city to city to city. And then the question comes to us as we think about this for our ministry. Is that our test for the same doctrine? Is it a test of truth and fruit? There are many who only want the unity in the gospel to be tested by fruit. Well, if it works, it must be right. More people are coming into the church than last week, so we must be teaching what's right. No. There are others who want it only tested by form of words. Well, I'm repeating the Scriptures... No matter that the church is shrinking, lives are not growing, the people are not showing evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. No, the test here of unity of doctrine, of sameness of teaching, is truth plus fruit. But it's not just the same doctrine. It's also, they see in Paul, the same grace. Look down with me at verse 9. Verse 9 is actually in parallel with verse 7. It's when they saw what I was teaching in verse 7 and in verse 9, when they perceived the grace. It's a parallel statement. It's not just that they saw that Paul was teaching the same doctrine. They saw that Paul had the same grace that they did. That he was entrusted with the gospel. That what he had had come from God. That God had sent the gospel to the Gentiles. It was God's idea, not Paul's. And therefore, they were to be united with him. And that what Paul was doing was seeking to establish God's liberty, not his own. If you think about it, we've said this before, Paul is perhaps the least likely candidate to go to the Gentiles. He's a former Pharisee. He was all about hating Gentiles. He was all about the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. 
And God takes Paul's weakness and turns it into his strength. It would be manifestly obvious to the apostles that this was only by the grace of God. You know, you don't see someone hate something for decades and turn around and have a complete change of character without some outside influence. So it is with Paul. And they perceived this grace. Again, there's a parallel to the seeing. They understood it. They knew about it. And it's not just some sort of general grace floating around out there. They knew it was a grace that had been given by God. It was this grace that was given that gave Paul boldness to preach the Gospel. It was this grace that Paul and the Galatians and you and I use in our gifts. We are given grace that we might have gifts to share with the body. It was obvious from Paul's life and demeanor that he had been given grace. We see that, don't we? B.B. Warfield tells an interesting story. Back in the wild days of the wildest area of the West, you know, one of these towns where the sheriff is afraid to go out of the town, uh, out of his building because he might get shot, where gunfights are routine, and where men have to be men's men lest they be taken apart by villains. There are two men walking down the street with chaos going on around them. And their demeanor was such that they were drawn to each other. Something about it. A calmness of spirit. And they walked up to each other and faced each other, seeing something that was the same about them. And the one man looked at the other man and he said, What is the chief end of man? And the other man said, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the first said, I knew you were a shorter catechism man. Just from your demeanor. You see, something about someone who is redeemed by Jesus Christ and who is disciplined to learn the truths of the gospel, it breeds a certain demeanor in us. Because that's what the gospel does. And so it is here with Paul and the apostles. They just look at Paul and they say, Oh, I knew you were a gospel of grace, man. The same grace that we have. So this is the unity that they have. <coughs> but there's also a diversity in, ministry, in mission. Look here at the end of verse 7 and at verse 8. After they'd seen that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel, it was the gospel to the uncircumcision just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. There's a diversity here in mission. We might say, first and foremost, there is a division of labor. And the interesting thing is, if we look at this, that it's recognized by both sides, isn't it? Paul's the one writing here. And he says, I know Peter was entrusted with an apostolic mission to the 
circumcised to the Jews, just as I was entrusted with an apostolic mission to the Gentiles. And the pillars understand this too, because at the end here, they say, you go to the you go to the uncircumcised, we'll go to the circumcised. They both recognize this. And there's something, there's an interesting little clue. Now, I've probably given you this caveat before, but I will give it to you again. Anytime someone finds something secret and mysterious in the Bible, you need to be wary. But I think there's an interesting thing here that's been seen throughout the ages. If you notice in verse 7 and verse 8, what name does Paul use? I think in probably every translation that we have, he says Peter. It may be of interest to you that nowhere else in his epistles does Paul call Peter, Peter. Every place else, including in Galatians, including earlier and later in this very chapter, he says Cephas. Now, some of you may wonder, hmm, you kids may ask your parents, well, which is right? When did, when did he change his name? I think there's something going on here. It points to something, I think, that underlies the understanding of a division of labor. In short, I think Paul is either quoting or referring back to an official pronouncement of the Jerusalem church, which would have used the name and title, Peter. Every place else where he speaks personally of Peter, he says Cephas. You see, the Jerusalem church understood that there was to be an official division of labor. Now, why would they have this division of labor? It's to be used for the spread of the gospel. <coughs> You'll notice that it's an apostolic ministry. There's a division of labor. It's not because Paul said, you know, I just don't really have this burden for Jews. Look at Romans 11. It's not because Peter said, well, Gentiles really don't float my boat. Go to Acts 10. It's because they wanted to see the gospel spread as quickly and efficiently as possible. Now, we understand this in ordinary context, don't we? It would have to be some of the older members of our congregation who would actually remember the days when in football men played both offense and defense, right? You know, now we're getting to the time where a man's job is to play only on third down. They're so specialized. We divide it up between offense and defense because it was more efficient. You could train better. You could hone your skills better. You could use your resources better. Not because there was some law that said you can't play offense and defense. You still can. We see it in building, don't we? Any of you who have ever been involved in building, members of our building task force, you have plumbers, you have electricians, you have drywall men. You have some people that do a few different things, but basically we divide up the labor so it's done better, more efficiently. We see it even at work, don't we? 
All of us that work in an office or a corporation. We have divisions. We have departments. Why? Because the government requires it? No. Because it's thought that we will be more efficient and that we will be more successful in completing our goals. So it is with the gospel. You see, the gospel is for everyone. Paul says that in Colossians 1. He says, The gospel that you heard is published to all creatures. Jesus Himself gave that command in Mark 16. He said, Go out and preach the gospel to the whole creation. But Jesus didn't say, That means every one of you has to learn every language on earth. No. We can have diversity of mission. We can have division of labor. We need to remember that in our own lives. Notice what is not bifurcated. Separated, kids. Fancy word for separated. What's not separated here? The message. Paul doesn't say, and Peter went on ahead of me, and he preached about the Ten Commandments and the law and sin. And then I came a week later and preached about redemption and grace. No. It's the same message. It's just taken to different people. And we, in our ministry, must not be tempted to do that. It is a great temptation for reformed believers to believe that their job is to fix Arminians. Arminians need fixing in their doctrine. But that is not your primary job. We don't let the Arminians save them and then we clean up the mess. We have one message that we bring. And we may bring it to the area in which God has given to us in Katy. I would not suggest that you start a ministry next week to Lubbock or Atlanta. You're going to find it difficult to do that from Katy. But do not bifurcate, divide your message. We have one unified gospel that we bring out in a diversity of ways and mission. And see how they do this diversity. Learn from this, beloved. It's a diversity of emphasis, not of exclusion. There's a context in which Paul's saying what he's saying. He's being very clear. He says it twice, right? I go to the Gentiles, you go to the Jews. I go to the uncircumcised, you go to the circumcised, right? So we would expect that the book of Acts, the great evangelistic explosion of the church, would be full of occasions of Peter going to the Jews and Paul going to the Gentiles, and none of the reverse. There's a problem with that. Turn back with me, if you would, to the book of Acts. It's not quite a sword drill, but I just want you to look so that you can look at these passages this afternoon. Go to Acts chapter 10. Beginning at verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, Roman name, 
a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, made up of men from the province of Italy. A Gentile. A Roman. A Gentile of Gentiles. A Roman citizen and soldier in authority. Who ministers to him? Peter. Look over at chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who went through Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter's so in with the Gentiles that he's getting a similar sort of abuse that Paul is. Look at chapter 15 and verse 7. Peter says, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, this is in the middle of the first general assembly. Okay? No more public place to say this. You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God and believe. You see, there's no exclusion. It's just a matter of emphasis. There's plenty of places for Peter to minister to Jews, but he's ministering to Gentiles as well. Turn back just two chapters to Acts 13. And verse 43, we see a different but similar thing. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed who? Paul and Barnabas. Where's Paul? He's in a synagogue. Who's he preaching to? Jews. And converts to Judaism. Go to Acts 17 and verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. You see, it was not that Paul was forbidden from being in a synagogue, not that Peter was forbidden. This is a division of labor. This is a conscious strategy. It's why in verse 9, after they give Paul the right hand of fellowship, they give him the right hand of fellowship, that we, that is Paul and Barnabas, should go to the Gentiles. You can almost read, on the condition that... They give them the right hand of fellowship on the condition that they would go to the Gentiles so that they know the gospel will go to the Gentiles. It's as if Peter, James, and John are saying, we've got our hands filled right here with Jerusalem. But the gospel is about more than Jerusalem. You need to go out and take it to the Gentiles with our blessing. Now that tells us something about our own ministry. We talked about unity in doctrine. Now we're talking about diversity in mission. You've got two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, different languages, different legal structures, different family structures, different diets. It's the same gospel for both of them. You'll notice that Paul and Peter and James and John don't say, well... About three-quarters of this gospel is relevant for the Gentiles. 
but this rest isn't really relevant, so you better just drop it. No. All of the gospel is relevant for everyone. And that is true for us today. So when someone says, well, the gospel isn't really relevant for Americans. You know, we push a button and we've got food. We dial a phone number and money arrives in our mailbox. You know, we're beyond needs now. Look at how much food we produce. Look at our technology. Look at our medicine. We're really a society that's beyond needing to trust in God. And the civilized answer to that is poppycock. The gospel was relevant then for all kinds of people. It's relevant now for all kinds of people. For the African living in the bush, for the European drinking lukewarm coffee in a cafe, for the American sitting out in the sun, drinking a Coke. It's relevant for all of us. It's the gospel. There's unity, there's diversity. And these two things are brought together by Paul with a partnership. Notice the mentality of both Paul and those in Jerusalem about how this one gospel will be brought to so many different places. It's by a partnership. The first thing that we see, because they saw it, is that it's God who forges the partnership. It was God who sent the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles. This was not Paul's idea. Paul did not say, you know what I think I'll do? All that time I spent learning dietary restrictions and Talmud citations and rabbinical comments, I'm going to forget all of that, and I think I'll take my mission to people that I wouldn't even have sat in the same room with. No. It was God. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, the Lord Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, tells Ananias, that Paul is a chosen messenger of mine to carry my name to the Gentiles. He is a chosen messenger. It was God who worked through both Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem. God is the one who is working, Paul says, both through himself and through the other apostles. He says it in verse 8 specifically. He says, For it is He who worked through Peter, and it is He who worked through me. Paul gave this same advice to the Corinthians in their own ministry. He said, There is a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers. So if it's God's working, if it's God's ministry, if it's God's gospel, why would we be competing with each other? You see, the Christian doesn't have the attitude, well, I hope John isn't too successful in EE next week because he might have more people that are converts than I would and that would not make me look good as a senior pastor. I need to have at least 1.3 times the number of converts that John does. And of course, 
the elders would say the same thing about the congregation. Well, we're elders, so we need to have probably at least 1.4 more converts. Or, well, I'm a Sunday school teacher, so I need to have at least 2.8 times more Bible verses memorized than the teenagers. No. This is a cooperative effort and partnership because it is God's gospel and ministry. It is God who does the work through us. And you see, Paul and the apostles are so clear about this that they give a visible display of unity. They give Paul the right hand of fellowship. They give him the right hand of fellowship. It shows that they took the initiative. You'll notice they don't wait for Paul. They take the initiative with Paul. This is a covenantal sign that they are bound together. We might see this illustrated in a wedding ring, a visible sign of unity between husband and wife. We see it even in simpler things, in things like blood brothers, where we cut our hands and we show the unity that we have. And it's the right hand of fellowship. This is not a superfluous ending of the phrase. It's the right hand of fellowship, of partnership in ministry and authority. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it said that they continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship? That doesn't just mean that they went to the apostles' houses for dinner. It means that they were under their authority. It means that they were partners. This is not optional. This is a required thing. You see, for us, we are bound to give the right hand of fellowship to those who partner with us in the gospel. But it's not just a visible display of unity. It's a visible display of ministry as well. What do they say at the end here to Paul? Remember the poor. That refers not just to a material need, because what did our Lord Jesus Christ say? When they came up to him and said, What's happening? John the Baptist's disciples came up and said, What's happening here? And he says, Go and tell them that the sick are healed, the lame walk, and that the poor have the gospel preached to them. This is about ministry in the community with the gospel. And this is important, both gospel doctrine and gospel ministry. 